0: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Before he was Otto, Tom Hanks played a guy named Chuck. He was a pilot for FedEx. Plane goes down. He's marooned on an island. He is literally cast away. And uh, the whole story is about um, how does he get home. And I want to show you first a scene of him explaining how that happened and then show you what it looked like when that homeward trip began and this is just chuck in his own words because i was never going to get off that island i was going to die there totally alone i had power over nothing that's when this feeling came over me like a warm blanket I knew, somehow, that I had to stay alive, somehow. I had to keep breathing, even though there was no reason to hope. And all my logic said that I would never see this place again. And that's what I did. I stayed alive. I kept breathing. And then one day that logic was proven all wrong because the tide came in, gave me a sail. It work it's work he's marooned he's resourceful he's resilient but as you heard there in his own recounting of that moment to his friends once he got home is that in that moment he had power over nothing I don't care how resilient or resourceful you are, something else is going to have to intervene. And here comes the plastic, and here comes the recognition that there is a wind behind him that might both point him and lead him home. We have, if you've not been with us before, thinking about trying to understand what does it mean to believe in the Holy Spirit is that anything more than just a way of speaking? Is it just a metaphor for something? Why, why, why give this much attention to it for the foreseeable future? It's because we're desperate. It's because we're desperate to know that there is more to following Jesus than just sort of balancing 12 ideas in our heads like a waiter with 12 cups and plates on a platter, because we're desperate to know that following Jesus is more than, if discipleship is more than just sort of being overloaded like a boy scout with too much in his backpack and he's got to carry it now. You've got to know all this and do all this. Just, we, we, we're desperate to know it's that. We're desperate to know that the resources that are available to us to follow him are more than just small groups and self-talk. What does it mean to believe in the Holy Spirit as the creed says? Well, last week we talked how One idea, one notion, one action of the Holy Spirit is the work of regeneration, where rather than you just sort of sit in a quiet room with candles and sort of think yourself into faith, that the Holy Spirit is one who acts upon us from the outside, blows behind us, is a wind in our sails, but more in the condition in the contours of our heart that's what regeneration is and we began to think about that through listening to a text last week Well, we're going to expand on that idea again this week and we're going to lead off from something that we heard last week from the very mouth of Jesus himself in chapter 3 verse 8 of John namely the wind blows where it wishes you hear it sound you don't know where it comes from or where it goes so it is with everyone born of the spirit the fact that there is a holy spirit And the nature of the way the the Holy Spirit works is an indication that you, like Chuck, have power over nothing. Something must intervene on your behalf, must intrude into your life and in the contours of your heart. It must enter into your condition and speak something like peace and more. That is an incremental little look at what it means to be regenerated of the Spirit. Well, we think that that idea is worth devoting a whole nother sermon to it, and so we will. We're going to listen to what Paul has to say about that. We're going to consider what it means to realize that we have power over nothing and that by his work he comes to do something for us. And it's going to result in, I'm going to say, three different kinds of shifts Regeneration is the work of the Spirit such that three things happen. Things that seem unnatural start to feel natural. Because things that, start, that feel natural start to become unnatural. And that is all because some things that begin transactional, what does that mean? Relax, it'll be there, will become something, well, you'll just have to stay for the entirety of it to know. Do you feel the suspense? We're in a short letter that Paul writes to this dude named Titus. And we're going to see if we can find our way through the nature of regeneration through those things that shift. So if you will, we're in Titus chapter 3. We're actually going to read it in reverse order. Would you stand? We're going to read in Titus chapter 3 and then we'll back up to the paragraph before in uh, Titus chapter 2. I hope you won't feel too disoriented. Titus chapter 3 starting in verse 1. we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. And then in the chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be God. You can sit. Um, Chuck did not see the wind. He saw the effects of the wind, and because he saw the effects of the wind, he had a reason to believe that there might be a way to get home. Jesus in John chapter 3 verse 8 says, you don't see the wind, but you see how it works. And where this sermon is going is to say, what are the effects of the Spirit's regeneration in the human heart? Before we know what the Spirit is doing there, we can see the effects of that effort. That's where we're going. This letter is short. Titus, somebody that had been sort of a spiritual son of Paul. Paul had mentored him. He was a, a child of the faith until Titus accompanies Paul on some of his missionary journeys. And then we get to, get to Crete and he says, you know, Paul says, to stay here, Titus. I need you to help manage things. We think he was kind of like what a ruling elder is these days. He's not. doesn't sound about preaching, doesn't talk about pastoring. He says, this is about managing the church, about how to shepherd it. This, this, this book, this letter, is actually in stark contrast to what we spent several months on listening to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. This is very much nuts and bolts work. What do you do to shepherd the church? How do you, who's qualified to lead it? What do you need to do in it? And then, rather than the way Ephesians did it, where I'll tell you the gospel, and then what are the implications of it, here he starts with, here's the implications of the gospel, and now I'll get to the gospel. Different letter different need, different approach, different audience. And in this one, Paul wants to talk first about what it means, what are the effects, what does it mean to be godly? This is a letter about godliness. If you want to know, what does it mean to be godly? Just read the little little Titus. It'll take you five minutes, max. And then it'll take you the rest of your life to understand it. When I use the word godliness in a room of mixed company, all sorts of associations show up. Oh, godliness. Oh, right. It's all about hoop skirts and holier than thou. And a lot of people will associate the word godliness with, oh, he's so godly, right? Very in-your-face kind of public. Look how, you know, holy I am. That's, those are some associations. You know what? There is a public element to godliness. And that public element is manifest at first, here are my first points to say, some things that seem unnatural start to seem natural as the effect of regeneration. What is that? What is one public element? Listen to verses 1 and 2 again. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy to all people. All right, without raising your hand. Does that sound unnatural or natural to you? Like every single thing sounds, what? Mm, Not my default. That seems perfectly unnatural. Let's just start with the whole part about being submissive to rulers. You don't have to babysit somebody long You show up at their house, you're getting ready to babysit the kids, baby's in the high chair eating food with the fans and decides to, you know, test the laws of gravity again and starts dropping food off the table. Mom looks at kid and says, ah, 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 we don't do that. And what does the kid do? Like they haven't been taught obscene gestures, but their eyes say it. Really? Really? kids, infants, they don't like rules, they don't like constraints, they don't like anything that says limitations. No, I, I won't. You were that. You are still that. The idea of being submissive to anybody, forget it. That is not natural. And you know, some people, they learn to be deferent and obedient to authorities, not because they respect them, but just because they go, that's just how I get along. I just, that's, that's how you succeed in this world, is you, you nod your head and say yes to everybody that has some sort of authority over you. You get older, you, you play that game maybe, you're either resistant or you're begrudgingly obedient, or you get older and, and you see the way people in authority use their power, and you become even more jaded, even more reason for thinking, you know, that deference to authority is intrusive, unwarranted, and unnatural. It is unnatural, Let's just pause for a second here. You know, Paul was speaking rather unequivocally there. One effect of regeneration is that you are submissive to rulers and authorities. Now, let's nuance that. Let's pause a little bit. You only have to go so far as Acts chapter 5, when the disciples, the apostles, are being persecuted, and they're being told to keep their mouths shut, and at some point they say, look, you know, sometimes you got to obey God rather than man. You may be an authority, But if it ever causes me to disobey my father, I will not do it. And if you read Revelation 13, hello, if you're looking for a good page turner there, there are moments when authorities are acting on behalf of sinister forces. You resist that. There's nuance. I know you like to read Romans 13, obey the authorities. We're listening to Paul say here to Titus, obey the authorities. That's there. There's also nuance elsewhere. What's going on here? Why is this important? There is a posture of being a citizen that comes from being regenerated. You didn't know it had public consequences like that, did you? There is a respect for authority that derives and is downstream of being regenerated by a spirit. Why? Look, if you're a Christian and you hear about authorities, you you think, wait a minute, um, I thought Jesus was Lord, not Caesar. It's a true statement. If you're a believer then, you may think, well, wait a minute, if Jesus is Lord, then I I bow to no one, right? Isn't it better for me to be only submissive? Well, sometimes authorities can act on behalf of the common good. Paul says as much. Jesus, in his little famous saying there about render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's, he understands that which belongs to God is deserving of everything that you have like you but there is a place for understanding that, in as much as you are a citizen of heaven, and you are, you're also a citizen of earth. A citizen of earth in which God actually can manifest his will in and through the structures and authorities of those who are in power, whether they're even aware of God or not, whether they even believe in God or not. They can seek the common good through preserving and protecting what is just even for a whole mix, host of mixed reasons and motives. There is a posture of citizenship that we take on that's downstream of what it means to be regenerated of the Lord. Why? Because right on the heels of him saying, "Remind them to be submissive and obedient to rulers, he says, and to be ready for every good work. It's in the same atmosphere of saying, what are authorities tasked with? to do good work for the sake of their people. You remember like two years ago when we're still out there in that parking lot and I'm under the tent and we're studying the book of Daniel and we were reminded of the fact that even he who is working, in an a- he's working as a cabinet-level minister in an adversarial com- com- uh, nation that's exiled Israel, that we were reminded of this fact. Authority derives from the sovereign will of God and every authority is accountable to that sovereign will. And when it is not, we resist and do that which is good unto the Lord. When it means to be ready for every good work, this kind of deference is not simply keep your head down and not in agreement for those that are saying and, and exercising authority. It is saying you participate with them in seeking the common good. That is downstream of being regenerated. You belong to Him, your citizenship is in heaven. But as a citizen of the earth, you are only living out what Jeremiah tells Israel in the midst of their exile in Jeremiah 29. Seek the welfare of this city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Do you know how wonderfully refreshing and liberating this idea is? I'll tell you the two extremes that you and I are tempted by, to become so beholden and enthrall to public authorities, to think they are the one we've been waiting for. And we look aside at everything else that is sort of suspect, and we, we just sort of jump in with them, and we don't think about anything about that. We, that's one temptation. Anybody ever felt it? Sorry, too convicting. The other side is to think they're a bunch of rot. There's nothing to that. I am going to be an anarchist. There's nothing to be found that's good in those who have power. Life in the gospel that's downstream of regeneration finds that sweet spot. I am a citizen of this earth, and I will seek its good because those who are above me are called to seek that same good. But I will not be tempted to be enthralled to anyone because they're not my Lord. Regeneration, what seems unnatural, starts to become natural because of that posture of how I am as a citizen, and lest I leave the next part out, not only is that a posture towards being a citizen, it's a posture toward every citizen. Speaking evil of no one, extending courtesy to all, you know know how foreign that sounds right now? Do you realize, surely we are all awakening to the fact that our anger and our polarization and our sniping and our snark, do you know what that is now? That's a commodity that's being bought and sold. Like the dude in the social project, social uh, dilemma called it, right? If you are not paying for the product, you are the product. And you know how you're the product? By hating each other in public ways. And it feels very natural to call out what you think is wrong and untrue and unjust and despising them for it. You can be properly maddened and livid about which is untrue and unjust, but when you start hating, congratulations. You've just fallen into the abyss, and it feels very natural to be angry at somebody. Everybody's doing it. Remember that line, Alan Jacobs, he wrote that book, How to Think, and, and and he said there's a principle that we all need to embrace again, and that's if... You hear somebody that angers you in a speech. I mean, he actually tells a story about a, a woman who's at a speech, and the, the person gives their talk, and they're done, and this person is just incensed by what that person said. And she walks up to him, and she is ready to like, lay into him and you know, just sort of come at him. And she throws this question at him, like almost like this caustic thing. And the speech giver doesn't like get defensive. He just says, looks at her, and he goes, give it five minutes. Give it five minutes. He's not throwing her away. He's not disputing with her. He just says, give it five minutes. You know what? She sits down. She gives it five minutes. She sits, and then she thinks. She realizes, hmm, he may not be totally wrong. He may not be totally right, but I might not be totally right either. What is downstream of regeneration is believing that you ought to give it five minutes the next time you're livid. Because that's a regeneration of the heart as well as the mind in realizing that we have a certain posture to every citizen that you meet of whatever nation, no matter how much you despise where they're coming from. And you might have a righteous indignation about where they're coming from. But like I said a few weeks ago, your worst enemy is not human. And when you treat another human as your worst enemy, you have just fallen prey to the one who is your greatest enemy. And he's got a name, and I won't mention it here, Voldemort. Regeneration means that there is a shift in that what seems unnatural starts to feel natural. Why is that? Because another shift has occurred. Now things that are public are actually downstream of this thing that's happened to you personally. And now some things that feel natural, or rather, yeah, natural, start to feel unnatural. Regeneration is, in a word, transformation. It's a change. It doesn't happen all at once. It takes your whole life. And there are moments in which you feel like, I have taken about 14 steps backward. It's okay. I get it. So does the Lord. It is a change. Regeneration is that. It's also a disruption. It is a disruption to a trajectory that you're on, that if you follow it, welcome to the ditch. Congratulations. Congratulations. It is a disruption of a storyline that is in you. And if you're listening carefully, in verse 3, Paul talks about a storyline. He kind of puts it in the storyline about what regeneration is. Like what you were and now what you are. Namely, the things that you thought were natural now start to feel unnatural. Before there was the disruption, this is what felt natural, starting in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish... Disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Sounds pretty normal. Sounds like Tuesday. <laughs> What's he talking about there? I think you could almost tell it like a storyline. What feels normal? What feels ordinary? Those things. And a regeneration of the heart means that those things that seem natural start to feel weird. They start to feel off and out of place, like, you know, breaking wind at a wake. It's just rude. Exactly. Nailed that one, right? Nailed it. That's all you're going to remember the rest of the day. (laughs) What is it that feels natural that becomes unnatural? Namely, um, you, you become an accident waiting to happen. When he talks about being foolish and disobedient and led astray, he is arguing that there is the default condition of the heart where if you are left to yourself, you will trust your own wisdom. You will bite into that first offer of autonomy and power that was offered to Adam and Eve. <laughs> did he really say you would die. You know what? You eat there, you will have, you will know good and evil and you won't need him. Foolish, disobedient, led astray. You are rapt attention to things that you become, you become deceived. You become, a com- you become complicit in your own demise. You become a co-conspirator in your own issue. You're an accident waiting to happen. Why is that? Because that which you're attracted to in time becomes an enslavement. He uses the word slaves to passions and pleasures. How does that work? You notice something. You're intrigued by what that ever is. The intrigue turns into interest. The interest turns into tasting, whatever it might be, then indulging. And you seek that, and to a point, and at some point, the pursuit of it holds you. And it so holds you that you will follow it no matter what it will harm you or harm others. It's no longer an interest that you have. It's now an interest that has you. Your desires, your pleasures have got you and will not let go of you. And that is a default condition that all of us have an example of. There's not one person in this room that is not feeling that or has felt that at some point. We know that. What happens, though when what you pursue, whatever that passion might be, whatever that pleasure is, what if it's frustrated? What if it's not met? What if you discover you can't always get what you want? You get frustrated. You get unnerved. And like a story, when that happens, what do you end up doing? You end up wasting yourself in malice and envy. Somebody has what you don't have, and you're, at first you feel hollow. You're a shell, because they have what you wish you had. You don't have it. You feel less, and the longer you feel that, and the more you nurture that, you brood on that, you start to feel resentful, you start to feel bitter, and then at some point, it breaks out, even in wide open or just deeply in the own echoes of your own heart, you look at them, and it's not only that you wish that they didn't have that good. Now you actually want their harm. And you actually spend minutes, if not hours, if not years, despising them. What a great waste of time. And how many of us in this room know this feeling? And you waste your days in malice and in envy and those passions, enslavements, or when you don't get it, and then what what does it all result in? You become a hollow person. Hating others and being hated by others. You are easily provoked because you have no basis for joy or hope or peace. And when you're easily provoked, you get provocative. This is the storyline that we will naturally give ourselves to unless something intrudes, unless something intervenes. These are the things that feel natural. And it is the regeneration of the Spirit to renew us, to make us different. And Don't worry, we're about to get there. What does that mean? But now those things that seem utterly at our fingertips that are just right there, we start to go, this, this feels off. This does not fit. I do not want this. How does that happen? How does that which is unnatural start to feel natural and how does that which feels natural start to feel unnatural i mean is it magic um do i pray a prayer and it all goes away um is it a snap of the fingers uh do i do you know cognitive behavioral therapy is that all it is is it how does it happen that's what gets me to the last part here the shift that regeneration is the effects of the unnatural becoming natural and the natural becoming unnatural, is all, I think, downstream of one greater shift that you might say is sort of at the epicenter from which everything else ripples out. And I am categorizing that shift into a word that is actually borrowed from, I think, the business world. It's this word transactional. There is a mindset, a way of being, That the business folk, you know who you are, have termed transactional. And it's a big word, and it's a new word, it's a modern word, don't worry about it. You already know what it is, because you already do it. I do too. What is a transactional mindset? Give to get. Quid pro quo, for those of you who speak Latin. I do this to get that. Why, how do I get the grade so that I can get the job, so that I can get the fellowship? Well, do the work. I do these things, I get those things. How do I get the paycheck? I follow all of the job description, I go for my quarterly reviews, and if that's good, I get a raise or a bonus or whatever that might, case might be. That's the mindset that we're all groomed in. None of that's necessarily wicked. It's how the world works. We ought to get feedback. There should be measurements. That all works. But do you realize the extent to which that has become internalized in your way of being? Everything becomes a transaction. Now, I hear there's this thing that happens in certain households. I have no personal experience with this. I've been told, there have been reports, I've come into me, <laughs> that when you ask someone in your household to do something, that sometimes, so I've heard, a certain um, negotiation period begins, right? You are asked to do something, and then suddenly that person starts to go, okay, well, could I get that if I will do this? Um, Could I trade this in order for that to happen? Uh, This is what I'm hearing. And that happens, and and inevitably, if you don't sort of uh, nip that one in the bud, um, uh, Barney, uh, you know, um, it starts to become this really escalated moment, and 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 by the time, you know, it takes no time before words like injustice and oppression start to be entering into the atmosphere. It's like this noxious fume, until at some point, somebody's got somebody in a headlock and says, take the broom, or he gets a wedgie, right? That's... (laughs) It's this transactional kind of experience. You don't just do it to do it, you gotta get something out of it, so I'm told. It even can act on a far more subtle way. Look, you get a gift, it's a great thing, and mom or dad says, now honey, we should write a thank you note because we don't want to appear ungrateful. Oh, we don't want to appear ungrateful, right? I don't care if you are grateful, I just don't want you to give the impression that you might be ungrateful, right? (laughs) Friends, come on. Like, you're all going, oh my God. Um, That's transactional. I am doing this, not because I feel anything in particular, but because I know this is how the game is played. That's how it works in our world. So what does it happen when it starts talking about the Lord? If following the Lord is to believe that he is favorable unto us, that we have a right to believe that we are beloved of his. The question is, oh, well, how does that come? Where does that come from? So far, I've told you about how things for, become unnatural or natural, one of the two, right? And you might be led to think, well, godliness, if I am godly, then I will then have his favor and acceptance, right? Isn't it transactional? Like, when it comes to thinking about the Lord, yours and my natural instinct is to think, all right, what do I got to do or not do in order to be, be happy? What sacrifice do I need to make in order for him to be happy with me? As if to say, what do I got to do to get him off my back? You say you don't believe in that way. I, 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 I respectfully wonder, are you sure? I know my heart. I bet you I know some things about yours. How do we have the favor and acceptance of the Lord? Is it because of all the things that we've talked about? No, those are the effects of regeneration. On what basis do any of us have a right to believe that we have the favor and acceptance of the Lord? It's because Paul says something appears in two different places in this passage. What appears? But when the loving kindness and goodness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. When the grace of God appeared, it trained us to renounce all ungodliness. What obliged you? What obliged him to do for you what he did for you? Was it because of anything in you? Of course not. How do we have his favor? It's because he said it in verse 4, chapter 3. Not by works of righteousness done by us, but according to his great mercy. He moved. He moved first. He was not impressed with you, but he loved you. That's what salvation is. God moves. God loved us first, so 1 John says. He came. He saved. He forgave. But in what does that salvation consist? It consists in regeneration, whereas something is birthed in your heart birthed with the belief that your sin, your corruption, your offensiveness will no longer be held against you. It was held against Jesus from his cross and you are forgiven. Full stop. And at the same time, you are birthed in you a new way of seeing. Life is given you. A new wind is behind your sails and that life changes the way you see the Lord and the way you see yourself and the way you see everybody else. You inherit a transactional mindset from everything else in this world, but the gospel is here to undermine that mindset and instead replace it with something else, from a transactional mindset to a devotional mindset. Okay, devotional, wait, you mean candles and you know, hot tea and a Bible and a journal? Is No, No, no. I wonder if you've ever reflected upon how many times do you do things that you think are loving because you're out to get something out of it? In how many relationships, whether it's with the Lord or someone else, that what you're doing is actually has your good most in mind? I mean, it has an appearance of good. And look, I'm not trying to say, your motives must be pure all the time. I, mine aren't, yours never will be, mine never will be too. But I wonder, have you ever considered how often the things that you do that have the appearance of love have mostly your good in mind? Kids, like I said at the beginning of the service, a lot of times you think following God is all about what I should do and what I should not do. That's the sum and substance of what it means to believe in him. No! It is to believe that he loves you. It is to believe that he is your portion. It is to believe that he is good and that it is his loving kindness and his goodness and his grace that first sent him running for your good like the father in the parable of the two sons runs to his kid who would run out on him and that same father that pleads the one that would have been as obedient, as dutiful as he could be but had absolutely no love for his father. Pick your category which you're in. It's the same father and it's the same love. I want to show you that really briefly, from an episode from House. And this is about a love between two people. And so there are plenty of things about this that has absolutely nothing to do with the kind of love that God has for us. But there is a hint, there is an echo of what it means that I'm talking about here of being displaced from a transactional mindset to a devotional mindset. So here we go. Design for five points. Got it. Here. Got it, both versions. Love. You didn't see love. Well, I didn't think you'd take my lack of board game skills so personally. Why didn't you tell me you loved me? Didn't a wise woman once say, and by once I mean two hours ago, why'd you have to analyze everything to death? Why can't this just be nice? I told you I loved you. You didn't tell me you loved me back. You don't think that should give me cause for concern? Nope. Just words don't matter. Actions matter. You're really going to take a stand here. You can't say nope. it. Nope. Why? Because I forgot to grab the Loeb Gets you 1 point. 1. I've done horrible things to you. I'll do horrible things again to you. Because of one stupid moment with a dying girl in a pile of rubble. You think I can change? Tell me where I'm wrong. I know you're screwed up. I know you are always gonna be screwed up. you're the most incredible man I've ever known. You are always gonna be The most incredible man I have ever known. So unless you're breaking up with me, I am going home now. Lord has for us, it's it's not a romantic love, it's not an attractive love, it's not a I'm impressed with you kind of love. But the one hint of an echo that I wanted you to see there was she didn't need him to say I love you in order to love him. She knew the fullness and the monstrousness that existed within him and there still is a love for him. I am saying to you that what God means to do it to us in regeneration is to convince you of this. I'm not impressed with you, but boy, do I love you. You don't bring anything to the table that can overcome or compensate for everything that you know you regret. But how else can you explain that unless there is a kind of love that he has for us just because he loves us? Why did God create? Because he was lonely? just love to create why does God save anybody because he like needs to conscript an army of followers God is not served by human hands Paul says elsewhere he doesn't need you but he loves you and if that's true of his being that's what he means for you to be true of your being not that you would love him because of everything that you might benefit from him but that you would just love him for his own sake which means you understand something about him that his love for you is like none other It's the difference between an ordinary kind of virtue and a true kind of virtue, says Jonathan Edwards. A lot of virtue out there. You do the right thing because of what good it does for you. And then there's the real kind of virtue that doesn't care what you get in return at all. You just do it because you love him. That's the sweet spot. That's a mature heart. And I'm not there either. But I think that's what he wants for us. That's what regeneration is. And that's how some things that become unnatural start to feel natural again. Love means love, not of the thing sung or of the singing. Thomas Brinkhurst said in a poem, these things. Self-love is an ending, she said, not a beginning, it's a poem. Love means love of the thing sung, not of the song or of the singing. Love means love, not of the thing served. Uh, love means love of the thing served, not of the service or of the serving. Love means love of the one preached, not of the preaching or of the sermon. If that's who he is, that's what we aspire to know. And then he is that wind behind our fragile sail. And he is the one that both points us and leads us home. Let's pray. Boy, have we set a tall order for you, sir. That we might hear that and understand that but more importantly to believe that and i think none of us in this room myself included can believe that apart from a work of your spirit so i pray that you would help us not to be afraid of being dependent and i pray that you would kindle in us a desire to be able to say unto you that we love you because we trust that your love for us is real no matter how dark the moment how uncertain or confusing it is how we're not even sure what the next step will be, would you whisper or shout, you choose what it means to know that in Jesus there is a love that is everlasting and that that might then propel us and lead us to a place that feels like home. In Jesus' name, amen.